Uh, I, I think most people here probably know that I have this vision impairment. Uh, it's gotten to a point where I'm no longer able to drive. Uh, and as a consequence of that, it's not uh, infrequent for me uh, to be catching an Uber. Uh, and often, uh, you can imagine in Melbourne, most Uber drivers uh, of uh, different religious backgrounds to me. Uh, and often I, I get a chance to speak with a Muslim. I was speaking with a Muslim Uber driver the other day. Uh, and they often, you get in the Uber and they say, oh, what do you do? And oh, what are you up to? And you say, oh, I'm a pastor of a church. And it kind of sparks this conversation about Jesus often. Uh, and I was, I, was, I was talking to this Muslim Uber driver about Christianity. I was explaining that because I was a Christian, uh, because I'm someone who, who trusts in the death of Jesus in my place for my sins on the cross, I can know absolutely for certain that I am innocent in God's sight. Oh, I, can, I can know rock solid, secure, that I've been forgiven by God and I'm justified in his sight. And this Muslim Uber driver said to me, uh, he said, you know, it would be wonderful if that was true, but it can't be. That was his, oh, God's honest truth. That was his response. It would be wonderful if that was true, but it can't be. But of course, as Christians, we know that this is true. We know that God wants us to have this kind of assurance before him, to be confident about where we stand before him, to be able to rest easy before him, and to know for certain that we're forgiven and innocent in his sight, we're justified in his sight. A few years ago, I was meeting with a friend of mine. This guy was a Catholic. And for the previous few years, despite the fact that he'd grown up in the Catholic Church and he'd always been really quite devout as a Catholic, this guy had had a few years where he'd been basically addicted to gambling. And when we first caught up, he said to me, Aaron, you've got no idea all the messed up stuff I've done over these past few years. It's really gotten pretty ugly. And so he, he lives, he said, uh, he lives his day-to-day life with a constant sense of guilt and shame uh, and this kind of horrible fear that one day God will indeed condemn him. Uh, and so over the next few weeks we were able to meet up and in my kind of fumbling way I uh, tried to explain the, the good news of the gospel to him and he was just blown away again by, by the fact that God would want us to have assurance before him. He'd always had this idea that it was just about good deeds outweighing bad deeds and he was really conscious that that wasn't the case for him. His bad deeds did outweigh his good deeds. Uh, But I was able to say to him, no, 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 God wants us to have assurance before him, to have confidence before him, to know that we're forgiven and, uh, and accepted by him and loved by him. You see, in the, in the previous section of Paul's letter to, to the church in Roman, uh, Rome, uh, from chapter 3, verse 21 to the end of chapter 4, Paul's been unpacking in great detail how sinful people like us can be justified in God's sight. How we can be assured that by faith in Jesus' death on the cross, we are innocent in God's sight. We are declared to be innocent in God's heavenly court where God sits as judge. That is the verdict on our lives, not because of us and what we have done, but because of Christ and what he's done. He died for our sins on the cross. He was clothed in our sins so that we might, by faith, be clothed in his perfect life, his righteous life, his innocent life. So by faith in him, we can be declared innocent before God. So now as Paul comes into chapter 5, he's aware that all of that unpacking of the doctrine of being justified by faith in Christ, all of that has probably raised some questions in the lives of other people reading his letter. Questions like, well sure, 
but what happens if I have a bad day next week? You know, what happens if I keep sinning? What happens if I keep struggling with all sorts of doubts and questions and confusion in my faith? What happens if I, I just don't grow as quickly as I think I should as a Christian? Can I really be sure in the midst of all of that, can I really be sure that God loves me and accepts me and forgives me? Uh, it's those kind of questions that Paul's starting to address in today's passage. Uh, and he really continues to address those questions all the way through to the end of chapter 8. And in this passage, we, we see really six reasons why uh, God wants us to have assurance before him. Six reasons why God wants us to have absolute assurance before him. Let, let's look at these reasons. The first in verse 1 uh, is that we can have assurance before God uh, if you trust in the, in the death of the Lord Jesus uh, because you know that you're already at peace with God. Look there in verse 1. Uh, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith... We have peace with God, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, so those who've already been justified are declared innocent in God's sight through trusting in the death of Christ on the cross. Those people, Paul says, have peace with God, uh, which is significant if you've read through the book of Romans. You remember uh, chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20, Paul unpacks in great detail how, how there's absolutely no peace between sinful human beings and God. Uh, we, as sinful human beings, shake our fist at God. God wants us to su uh, su submit to his rule, but we say, no, I'm my own little king. I'm going to rule my life. I, I want to do life my way. We hate uh, surrendering, uh, submitting to God's rule. Uh, so there's hostility between sinful human beings and God, and there's hostility, even more importantly, between God and sinful human beings. Paul unpacks in that section how God is rightly angry with sinful humanity. So what Paul's saying here really stands out in the book of Romans, doesn't it? Because Paul's saying that God is not angry at all with those who've put their faith in Christ. All that hostility is gone. Those who've put their faith in Christ are now at peace with God. And we saw back in chapter 3, verse 25, that that hostility is gone because God has presented his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement. Uh, that strange word we talked about, propitiation sacrifice. It's a, a sacrifice, that uh, Christ's sacrifice on the cross that turns aside all of God's hostility and anger at our sin. So that if we put our faith in Christ... Uh, we can know that there's absolutely no hostility left for us, no anger left for us. Now, some people think this is a little bit, it's a little bit primitive, a little bit archaic to, to suggest that Christ had to pay this, uh, this horrendous cost for us to be at peace with God. But frankly, I think that's just a little bit naive. Isn't it true that all of us, uh, understand that if you're in a relationship and there's been a deep breakdown in that relationship, long-term bitterness, anger, hostility, we understand that if there's going to be peace in that relationship, someone has to pay the cost for peace. Someone, perhaps both people, are going to have to swallow their desire to judge, to condemn. They're going to have to swallow all their anger. They're going to have to swallow their bitterness, their desire to, to keep making the other person pay for past mistakes. Well, Paul's saying that our relationship with God is no different to that. There's deep hostility between us and God, anger, bitterness, 
And on the cross, God himself, in the person of his son, absorbs all of that bitterness into himself, takes all that anger into himself, that he might be able to be at peace with us. It's Christ, through his death on the cross, that pays, uh, who pays the cost of peace. Uh, so those who trust in him uh, can know, can be assured before God, uh, because they are already at peace with God. Second, well, we can have assurance before God, and uh, not just because we're already at peace with God, uh, but because we stand in a position of grace before God. Verse 2. Paul says, through uh, Jesus Christ, we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. I'm sorry, if you trust in Jesus' death on the cross, Paul's saying your relationship with God has been completely transformed. Right? Previously, chapter 1, verse 18 to 3, verse 20, you stood before God as a condemned sinner before a holy judge. That was the status of your relationship with God. Uh, but now, through faith in Christ, you stand before God as a loved child before your heavenly Father. You, you, you've got a completely different status before God. You, you don't stand before God in a position of anger and hostility, but in a position of peace and grace and life. You've gained access to that position, not because of you and what you've done, but because of Christ and what he has done. That, that's the wonder. You, you've got, gained uh, access to this position of grace before God. This is perhaps important to dwell on a bit. Paul's saying that if you trust in Christ, you stand in a position where God is eager to bless you, to show you favour, to love you, to seek your good in all things. That's God's disposition towards you. I think that's important to dwell on because I think many Christians think that Jesus kind of just gets us back to neutral. You know what I mean? Like you were like, yeah, 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 I was spiritually in debt to God because of all my sins. And Jesus died on the cross and he paid the cost for all those debts. And so now, now I'm back to neutral. But what happens if I start sinning again? It's like I feel like the debts start accumulating again. Right, but that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that Jesus' death on the cross paid the price for all of our debts, past, present and future. So there's no going back into God's bad books. There's no going back into debt. You stand in a position of grace before God. For some of you, it's not the financial language. It's the cleanness language. You're like, yeah, I get Jesus died on the cross to to cleanse me of all my sins. Uh, But now what, what happens if I start doing unclean things again? I feel dirty again. I feel ashamed again. Maybe I'm not secure before God. But Jesus died for all of our unclean things, past, present, and future. So you stand in this position of grace before God. God is eager to love you and bless you and show you all his favor, to seek your good in all things, not because of you and what you've done, but because of Christ and what he has done. So while you're holding on to Christ, while you're clinging to Christ in faith, nothing can remove you from that position of grace. Deep assurance, you, you, have peace bef- you have peace with God. You stand before God in a position of grace. And third, uh, you can have assurance before God uh, because you have a secure hope of glory. Hey, look at the end of verse 3. Paul says, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. 
So you look at the timings in the present moment, Paul's saying, if you trust in Jesus, you're at peace with God, you, you're, you stand in this position of grace before God. Uh, but you can also look to the future with confidence uh, because you've got this sure and certain hope that one day you will see God face to face. That's the hope of glory. You'll see God in all his glory and you too will be glorified. You remember a few weeks ago that uh, we talked about Psalm 8 verse 5. You can write that verse down if you like. I'm not going to sort of flick there. But Psalm 8 verse 5 uh, describes the fact that God created human beings to be the crowning glory of his creation. Every single human being on the planet is supposed to be a bit like a mirror that shares in and reflects the glory of God. That that, that was God's intention for us. But you remember in in Romans 3, verse 23, Paul said that because of our sin, we fall short of God's glory. We lack God's glory. There's something missing from our lives. There's something something missing from our world. It's like you're doing a a puzzle in your life and there's this missing piece that you can never lay your fingers on. You You just can never quite plug it in. It's the glory of God. And Paul's saying here in verse 2 that Christians have the hope that one day that missing piece will be fully and finally replaced. It will be replaced in our lives as we see the glory, the glory of God face to face and we share in his glory and reflect his glory as we were always intended to and it will be replaced in our world as once again the world is as it should be. We all know the world's like a puzzle with a missing piece. It's fragmented. It's messed up. One day the the peace won't be missing anymore. This is our wonderful hope of glory. And Paul says this hope of glory is so certain that we can start boasting about it now. We boast in the hope of the glory, glory of God, Paul says. We boast about it now because it's a done deal. It's guaranteed. Three reasons for assurance. We're already at peace with God, where we stand in this position of wonderful grace before God, and we have this secure hope of glory. Fourth, we can have assurance before God because we know that persevering through suffering will lead to that hope of glory. I look from verse 3. Paul says, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Paul's saying that, that, that Christians who've put their trust in Christ, who are at peace with God, who stand in this position of grace before God, those Christians uh, look at their suffering in a completely different way. Like being a Christian revolutionizes how you think about suffering. Not that you just get all kind of, yeah, I'm going to put on a happy face or you get all stoic or kind of stiff up a lip. I'm going to not whinge and complain about it. I'm just going to push through. That's what lots of people think being a Christian means. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Uh, but Paul's saying that somehow Christians glory in their sufferings. They boast in their sufferings. Now, he's not saying that Christians boast in the suffering in and of itself. Like Christians know that when God first created the world, suffering wasn't a part of that world. And suffering won't be a part of God's ultimate creation, his new creation. So it's right and appropriate for Christians to be grieved at suffering. 
it's right and appropriate for you to be grieved at suffering. Uh, But here Paul's saying that, that even in the midst of being grieved by the pain and suffering that we experience in life, Uh, There's a sense in which we can also be thankful for our suffering. We can glory in our suffering. How is that possible? Well, it's only possible because of what Paul said in verse 2. It's possible because we know that we stand in a position of grace before God. That's what makes this possible. It's possible because we know uh, that every bit of suffering that comes into our life isn't random or meaningless or purposeless. It comes from the loving and powerful hand of our Heavenly Father who is seeking our good in all things. We, we stand in a position of grace before Him. We know His every intention towards us is for our good. And so every bit of suffering He allows is for our good. And that's how I feel about my eyesight uh, disappearing, frankly. I've got no idea why that would be God's uh, wisdom. I, in my human wisdom, I feel like I could do a whole lot more good for, for God's kingdom, for the glory of Jesus, if I just had perfect vision for the rest of my life. I just don't get why God would allow that suffering into my life. Uh, but what I do know is that it's not random. It's not purposeless or meaningless. My loving Heavenly Father ordained that suffering. He ordained it for my good. Because I stand in a position of grace before Him. He's not punishing me. I stand in a position of grace before Him. He's allowed that suffering for my good. He's allowed the suffering you're experiencing for your good. What is that good? Well, that's what verses 3 to 5 are about. The good is that our faith would be tested that we would persevere in faith under that testing, that we would grow more like Christ in our character, uh, and that in turn would strengthen our hope of glory. That's the good. Uh, Now, uh, it's grand final weekend, and so it seems only fitting that uh, I have some sort of illustration to do with AFL football. And uh, my illustration is that I've been a supporter of the, the Melbourne Footy Club for my whole life. The Melbourne Football Club. If you've got any uh, familiarity uh, with AFL football, you'll know that being a supporter of Melbourne uh, means that I'm well acquainted with suffering and trials. Uh, I actually, my uh, this is a slight tangent, but my dad uh, always talks about how he uh, in his, in kind of 1964 when Melbourne won their last premiership, uh, he was his high school teacher who was a Melbourne supporter was like, "Look, we've had a good run in the 50s and 60s, and we're going to give some other teams a go for a while." You know, that was in 1964. He probably didn't anticipate that it would be this long. Uh, but anyway, that's the story of being a Melbourne supporter. Uh, but the thing is that as I persevere in supporting Melbourne through thick and thin, through all the ups and downs, I have great assurance that I'm the real deal as a Melbourne supporter. You know, like why else would I do it if I wasn't the genuine article? Right? Not like uh, those fair weather supporters who are going to get on the bandwagon next year when we win the premiership. No, 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 not me. I've been there the whole time. Right? And Paul's saying it's a bit like that as a Christian. Right? When you persevere in trusting Jesus in the midst of suffering, it increases your assurance that you're the real deal as a Christian. It increases your assurance that one day on the other side of all that suffering, you'll lay your hand on the ultimate prize, not just some AFL premiership, but that wonderful hope of glory. A new heavens, a new earth where sin is done away with, where suffering's gone, where sickness is gone, where, where Satan is destroyed. 
That's the ultimate glory. And as you persevere in trust in Christ in the midst of suffering, you can know that God is working for your good towards that ultimate glory and that one day you'll lay hold of it and it will be wonderful. And Paul says this hope of glory is so secure. Uh, look, at what, look at the words he says there. It's so secure that it will never put us to shame. Right here, it's not like that the hope of glory that I have of Melbourne one day winning a premiership, it's not like that. This hope is rock solid, guaranteed, Paul say. How do we know that? Well, look at why Paul says. Paul says it's secure because God has poured his spirit into our hearts. That might seem a bit random, but what's the connection? How can we know from God's spirit being in our hearts that the hope of glory is secure? It reminds me a bit of what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. I'll read those verses. Just a few verses on from the verses Ricky read in the call to worship. Ephesians 1, verse 13, Paul says, When you believe the gospel, you were marked in Christ with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. You see what what Paul's saying about the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer in Ephesians 1 and in Romans 5. He's saying that the the Spirit uh, increases, uh, should increase our assurance. Because what's the Spirit like? The Spirit is like a deposit, Paul says, a down payment that guarantees that the full inheritance is coming. Right? The full inheritance is our hope of glory, and Paul's saying God is good for it. He's given the Spirit, he's given the down payment, and the rest is coming. It's like you if you go to a wedding. Uh, you get the appetizer when you walk into the foyer, and man, you hope that they're good for the full banquet. Right? If that's all it's going to be, it's going to be a long day. You're going to get very, very hangry. Right? So you're, and Paul's saying that's what it's like when you're a Christian and your heart is filled with the Spirit. You can know, you can be assured that God is good for the full inheritance. So this hope of glory will not put us to shame. So verses 3 to 5, we can have assurance before God because we know that persevering through suffering will lead to glory, to this wonderful hope of glory. Fifth, we can have assurance before God because we can know that we're absolutely secure in his love. This is verses 5 to 8. Paul, in verses 5 to 8, gives us two different ways in which God wants to assure us of his love. One's uh, really touchy-feely and subjective and kind of experiential, and one's really objective about thinking, right? So there's something for everyone here, right? You might be the real feelings type or you might be the real thinking type. Which Either way, God wants to assure us in both ways. So first, verse 5, God's given us this subjective assurance by the presence of his spirit in our heart. Look what Paul says in verse 5. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So it's not just that the spirit is a deposit that guarantees our hope of glory, but that the spirit assures us of God's love for us. It's the spirit. Objectively, verse 2, you stand in a position of grace before God. That's objective truth. It's wonderful. But what good is that if, you're never, if you never feel that? It's the role of the Spirit to assure you that you stand in that position before God. That God loves you, that he's, wants, that he's seeking your good, that he wants to bless you in all things. So that's what Paul's saying here. This, this is what God wants for you if you're a Christian, not just to know in your head that God loves you, but to experience in your heart by the power of his Spirit 
that he loves you. Now, I know that in a Presbyterian church, there are lots of people like the Presbyterian church because we teach the Bible, right? Right? That's why Tom amped that up and he's sharing about it. I'm not doing it. But, uh, you know, like people... And so the Presbyterian church tends to attract thinking types. Right? People who want their, their doctrine to be clear and straight, Right? But that's not the full story of being a Christian. That's wonderful. We'll get to that in a second. But, but God uh, doesn't want us just to know in our heads that he loves us, but to experience in our hearts that he loves us. To experience his love for us personally. Uh, in Ephesians 3, Paul says, Ephesians 3, he prays that the Ephesians might have the power, by the power of God's Spirit, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love, not just to know it, but to to experience this love that surpasses all knowledge. God wants you, if you're a Christian, God wants you to, to plumb the depths of his love for you in Christ. To experience the fullness of his love by the power of his spirit. So let me encourage you, if that's something that's quite foreign for you as a Christian... Why don't you open up Ephesians 3 later on when you get home and make that your prayer for this week. Every day for this week. Why don't you pray? Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. Ask God by the power of his spirit to show you just how wide and long and high and deep his love is for you in Christ. God wants you to be assured of his love for you subjectively. But verses 6 to 8. God also wants us to be assured of his love objectively. And that's by Christ's death on the cross in our place. Look in verse 6. Paul says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Kelly did a great job of this. Right? How, how did God demonstrate his love for us? He did it by sending his son, the Lord Jesus, to die for us. When? Well, Paul says, at just the right time. What was so right about this time? Well, it was right but because it was the time when it was very uh, abundantly clear that we could do absolutely nothing to save ourselves, that, that we were completely unworthy of God saving us. Look at, look at the words Paul uses to describe our kind of spiritual condition when Christ died for us. Look in verses 6 to 8. Paul says we were powerless, we were ungodly, we, were, we weren't righteous, and Christ died for us while we were still sinners. I don't know if this thought ever crosses your mind, but sometimes I think uh, something along the lines of, I just don't know if I'm worthy of God's love. That that thought sometimes pops into my head. Uh, Perhaps it does for you. And I think Paul would say, you're absolutely right. You're right. You're not worthy of God's love. God never did love you because you were worthy of his love, because you deserved his love. That's Paul's point here. God loved you freely. He loved you graciously. He loved you just because he wanted to love you. Why did God love you? Well, just because, really. Just because it pleased him to love you. 
Right, and this is wonderful news. This brings great assurance because if you think God's love for you is somehow contingent on you being worthy of his love, like it's contingent on your obedience or your performance or your level of service or sacrifice, if that's how you operate in the Christian life, you'll never be assured of God's love for you. Absolutely ever because you will never, ever be worthy. You'll never be good enough. But that's not the gospel, is it? That's what Paul's saying here. God demonstrates his love for us, not in sending Christ to die for us because we were so worthy, but in sending Christ to die for us while we were unworthy, while we were sinners. This, gives us, this is what gives us assurance before God. God's love for you was never and will never be contingent on your worthiness. His love for you is all about how good he is and not about how good you are. And the more you think about that, the more you'll have assurance before God. You realize that your status before God in that position of grace is not about your works going up and down, but it's about Christ's work on the cross. Finally, verses 9 to 11. uh, We can have assurance before God uh, because God's past and present uh, treatment of us, his behavior towards us, predicts his future treatment. That's a long point, but hopefully you'll get it. Verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more, Paul says, shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if we were uh, God's eni- uh, sorry, <clears throat> for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So you see what Paul's doing? It's a bit of a logical argument uh, from the lesser thing Uh, Sorry, from the greater thing to the lesser thing. So he's saying, first, if God's already done the the amazing, the incredible thing of justifying us simply by faith in Christ's blood on the cross, which he has done, uh, then how much more? Is he going to do the smaller thing of saving us from his wrath on judgment day? God's already given his verdict and he's not going to go back on his word. Paul's saying he's already done the big thing So how much more is he just going to tidy up loose ends on judgment day? Don't fret. And secondly, if God's already reconciled us to himself while we were his enemies, which he has, then how much more now that that we're his dearly loved children, are we going to have eternal life on judgment day? God is not going to cast off his dearly loved children. So the basic idea in these verses is a little bit like how all recruiting works. I don't know if you work in management or recruiting, but the basic kind of catch cry is that the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. Sometimes you put someone on, they've been an absolute jerk in the past, but I'm sure they'll straighten out. No, they won't. The best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying if you want to be confident about the future, just look at how God's treated you in the past. He sent his son to die for you while you were still a sinner. So how much more can you be confident in his treatment of you in the future? So Paul finishes this wonderful passage in verse 11, appropriately by giving all praise and glory to God. This wonderful assurance is 100% a gift of God's grace. And so Paul praises God alone. Well, let's just uh, think about how this might apply. 
Uh, as, as we all kind of sit here today, uh, we're a bit of a mixed bunch. I don't know how you feel or how you think about your relationship with God. Uh, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian at all. Someone invited you to church, you're exploring Christianity, you've been thinking things through for quite some time. If that's you, it's a wonderful thing that you're here. And please don't leave today without getting some stuff sorted out with God. If you want to do that, come and talk to me after the service. God wants you, through trusting in the death of his son on the cross, to have this wonderful assurance before him. Uh, If you've ever felt burdened by guilt or shame, if you've ever felt worried about what's the fate going to be on judgment day, please come and talk to me or to someone who you've come with after church today. Uh, We'd love to show you how you can have assurance before God through faith in Christ. Or maybe you're a little bit different to that. Maybe you're a bit like my Catholic friend that I mentioned at the start of my sermon. It's not like you're a non-Christian. In fact, you've always been in and around church. You know your Bible quite well. You regularly say your prayers. You try your best to to be a good person, to live God's way. Uh, You consider yourself to be a Christian. And yet much of what uh, I've unpacked from this passage today about having assurance before God, much of that is really, really foreign to you. You live your life uh, really conscious of your guilt and shame before God uh, and quite worried and unsure about what the fate might be on Judgment Day. If that's you, let me encourage you, don't leave today without talking to God about that. Don't leave today without talking to, to me or someone else about that because God doesn't want that for you. He wants you to have this assurance before him through trusting in the death of his son on the cross and to know that you are indeed at peace with him, that you stand in this position of grace before him uh, and you're secure in his love forever. Uh, Finally, uh, many, if not most of you here, are already Christians. I pray that as we've looked at this passage today and maybe as you keep thinking about it during the week, I pray that your assurance before God would be strengthened. I pray you'd be able to rest before God, knowing that you're at peace with him, knowing that uh, he's eager to bless you, that his attitude towards you is one of love, that he wants to seek your good in all things. I pray you're assured of that. I pray your assurance has been strengthened. But don't keep it to yourself. Uh, I grew up in church uh, singing a classic old hymn, Blessed Assurance. I don't know if anyone uh, knows that. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Uh, We don't sing it here. Uh, But the the first verse is, uh, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Uh, But then the chorus says, you know, if you know, this is my story. Okay, I won't sing it, but you know, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Saviour all the day long. See what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, if you know what it is to have this blessed assurance before God, and to be absolutely confident before God about what your fate is before God, where you stand before God, if you know what it is to have that assurance, it puts a song in your heart and you have a story to share. That's what the song's saying. You've got a story to share with other people. And Paul knew that. That's why Romans 5 to 8, all about assurance, is such a big deal in the book of Romans. Remember, Paul's writing to the church in Rome so that they would get behind his mission to share the good news of the gospel with people around the world. And he's saying to them, if you get your head around the fact 
that you can have assurance before God simply by trusting in Christ, then you, you can't help but talk to other people about that. You can't help but support other people who want to talk to people about that. Because you know that this is a wonderful message to share. Right? That's us too. You, if you trust in Christ, have a story to share. You might not quite know exactly how to share it. But you do have a story of how God's graciously given you assurance before him simply by trusting in his son. And if that's your story, why don't you make a plan to share it with someone this week? You know, pray about Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. And maybe make a plan to share with someone your story this week. I think you might find that they're a little bit like my Muslim Uber driver. I say, oh, it'd be wonderful if that was true, but it can't be. Well, that's, a good, that's a good place for the conversation to get to. You say, well, actually it is. Let me, let me explain that to you. Oh, I'm going to pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for uh, this, your word. Uh, we praise you for the simplicity of the gospel message that simply by trusting in the death of your son on the cross, we can know uh, that we, are, uh, we can have this wonderful assurance before you. We can know that we're forgiven, that we're innocent, that we are at peace with you, uh, that we stand in this position of grace where, you're, uh, where we're secure in your love, uh, where you're eager to bless us uh, and seek our good in all things. Uh, Father, please bring us all by the power of your Spirit uh, to uh, bring us into this place of assurance and remind us afresh that we are in this place of assurance if we trust in your Son, our Lord Jesus, uh, in whose name we pray. Amen.